And so I care about all of the issues that we as progressives believe in from being pro-choice to pro-public education. My mom is a middle school principal to the dignity of work and folks needing to earn a living wage. But the way that Republicans are preventing us from accessing all of those things in part is by discouraging us from voting or actually preventing folks from voting. And so the way that I can have an impact on all of the things that I care about is by making sure that voters have access to the ballot box. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Rose Clouston, Chief Operating Officer at Dem Power Labs, a new organization that supports state Democratic parties as they work to counter Republican attacks on election administration and to leverage Democratic parties' unique positioning to defend democracy. I talked to Rose about her path to working in voter protection and what she's up to at Dem Power Labs. So after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Rose Clouston of Dem Power Labs. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Rose, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. I'm Rose Clouston. I am based in Austin, Texas, and I grew up in Chicago and made it to Texas by way of the University of Florida and then about a 10-year stint in D.C. doing various nonprofits and political work. And then found myself to Texas to work at the Texas Democratic Party. I'm always curious why people go into politics. It's not for everybody. What got you in? Yeah, well, I grew up in, like I mentioned, in Chicago in a big union family, just in terms of was very aware of the importance of unions and fighting for the dignity of work just through my own uh, dad's participation in UFCW Local 881. And uh, I also grew up very Catholic. And so those values of social justice and doing actions to live our values were very much instilled in me from a young age. I am no longer a practicing Catholic, but those values still really show up for me in the way that I came into politics. I really stumbled into it because I thought that becoming an intern on the Carrie Edwards campaign in 2004 would look good on my law school applications. <laughs> I never quite made it to law school, but got on the Carrie Edwards campaign as an intern in Florida and just caught the campaign bug like so many people and really valued that sense of community that I think this work brings to us, where we are very clearly all fighting for one clear goal, right? Election day is coming and there is no stopping it. And we are all 
pushing toward that goal of getting more votes and now making sure those votes are counted than our opponent. But what was it about being an intern for Carrie Edwards that was so attractive? I mean, I spent some time going in and out of that headquarters, I remember, but there must have been something about the work or about about the sort of the battle between the parties or I don't know. What was it? Yeah, I think it was a few things. It was certainly that sense of community that I mentioned. But I also, working in Florida, I was responsible for Levy County, which is a rural county just west of Gainesville, where I was a student. And in 2004, we were really talking a lot about not even same-sex marriage necessarily, but just the fight for domestic partnerships and all of those different iterations that we've had over the years. And um, George Bush, George W. Bush's anti-LGBTQ stance became really clear to me when I was talking to this lesbian couple who are living in rural Florida. And this was a fight for their lives for them. Whether this person was reelected was so pivotal for kind of how they were able to live their lives and what their relationship looked like that seeing how politics played out in real people's lives and what that meant to them. And that then I, even as this lowly intern who was just learning everything myself, we're in this training and we were talking about the work and how we could all work in our communities and giving folks some you know basic organizing tools. And these folks from this rural part of Florida came out feeling like they could change their community, right? That they could have their piece of this national race and this really important thing. And they felt like they had that power. And I, I will never forget it. Driving home from that training, I called my mom. I'm like, mom, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. And she's like, what about law school? I'm like, I don't know if it fits in. We'll see. <laughs> that, you know, But this is it. And she's like, well, does it pay? And I was like, I don't know. I think some people are getting paid on the campaign. We'll figure it out. I'll figure out a way to make sure it gets paid later. And then it's been a winding road since, but being able to empower other folks to be a part of this process has really been one of the the threads that has stuck with me through through my work. I think it's really cool when someone discovers something that they want to do in life. You know, like it doesn't happen to everybody, or sometimes they think they do, and it turns out to be the wrong thing, and they're miserable. But I like it when I hear that. What was next for you? Trace your path a little bit through the the sequence of jobs that take you to where you are now. Yeah. Well, the campaign bug was very strong for me. So I found what was the next possible campaign that next semester. And my uh, very good friend who was a fellow intern on the Carrie Edwards campaign decided to run for student body president. And so I ran his campaign for student government and stayed involved in student government just because I needed to scratch that campaign itch for a couple of years. Um end up doing some more organizing in Florida. And then when I graduated, uh, five days later, moved up to Northern Virginia to work for a small fundraising firm that was um, run by uh, Mame Riley, who was the DNC Women's Caucus Chair. I've talked to Mame Riley in the day, back in the day. She, I, I didn't know her very well, but I remember she was considered very formidable. Is that right? That is a great word for Mame, yes. <laughs> Uh, so I was very fortunate to have Mame as a mentor and my first boss. Uh, as you're indicating, she was a, a tough boss, but taught me a ton 
about this work and how to do it well and with integrity. And so did fundraising for a little bit. Then she moved over to run a gubernatorial campaign in Virginia. And I moved with her and became the person of who did everything that nobody else did. Just kind of a Jane of all trades. That was Brian Moran campaign? Yes, that's right. Not a campaign that was successful, but what did you learn on that? I've made some very great friends on that race that are still friends to this day. So it reinforced that sense of community. It also taught me that, quite frankly, fundraising was not what I wanted to do as a career in politics. And that I was interested and love domestic campaigns. But at that time, I kind of needed a break after that and went to look for that on more issue focused and to do democracy work more broadly. At the time, I thought that was going to be in an international space and eventually went to grad school at Georgetown McCourt School to focus on international democracy. So it was a great lesson in all the different facets of the campaign. As a young person, because I was MAME's person, I got to see all the different facets in a way that I never would have if I had been in a particular role, you know, in communications or in political or something like that. So I really got exposure to a lot of different facets of the work and have taken that with me as I've worked at the state party and other places. If you had to place yourself into one of the, what you're calling facets of the campaign, which one was most intriguing to you? At the time, it was probably communications. And now I found myself very much in the voting rights and voter protection piece of the work. But at the time when I graduated college, I thought I wanted to be CJ Craig from the West Wing one day and work on the communication side of things. So you did some democracy work. I think I saw you work for IFAS uh, for a little bit. I noticed that because I knew someone who worked there doing like international elect electoral systems and going into Africa and figuring out when a country was trying to get its democracy going, consulting on that. What was it like for you where you were in that organization? Yeah. So I worked at IFAS, um, the International Foundation for Election Systems, for one semester of grad school and spent a year, another year of grad school at the National Democratic Institute, NDI, both of which focus on international democracy development. And one of the things that I learned in those spaces is how that work was moving forward in a really great way that meant that there was not quite the space for me that I thought there was. One of the things that international democracy development was moving toward was working with more folks in country that someone with my rudimentary skill set, you know, of a couple of years on campaigns was not that valuable because you could find someone locally who could do that same type of work and that that is better for building capacity in the country and for the actual democratic development of the place. So I thought I wanted to go and live in East Africa and work on these programs. And that was not the role that they needed for folks from the US. And so I think that was a really good vantage point that helped me also shape some of the work I did later of seeing those same parallels in the US of moving toward state-based work and kind of the more local that we do the work in my opinion, a lot of times the more impactful that we can be. And that was a great lesson in that. But I also got to spend a summer in Nairobi working for a locally run organization in Somalia called Somali Family Services, doing donor relations for them and learning about 
the international grant making process and what a truly locally run organization looks like. And seeing Somalia, where literally they had not had a government in over 20 years at that time. And we were having basic programs like talking to people about what the health minister does. And no, you don't have to pay them to do that. That is their job by being the health minister. And so really like from the ground up, democratic development of some basic water government functions and how can you utilize them uh, was just really eye-opening for me in that space. It feels like a lot of people in American politics don't have international knowledge at all, like surprisingly few. And they think that the way our politics works is the only way that politics works. Maybe they don't even read the newspaper about elections in other countries. Does that perspective that you have of, of a little bit of work in that area, does that affect how you think about what's going on in Texas, say, or or more broadly? Absolutely. And the most extreme version of that is in the 2020 election where I was voter protection director for the Texas Democratic Party. And we saw attempts to literally throw out and disregard 127,000 votes that were properly cast in Harris County, which is where Houston was. And whether those votes were going to be counted or not was decided the day before election day. And that sort of just disregard for the will of folks, because you don't think that you will like the outcome of that election. Harris County is predominantly Black and Hispanic and does not vote the way that the Republican majority of Texas would like them to. And when they thought things were close, they wanted to throw out the ballots of a lot of folks in that community. And I was calling upon a lot of my experience and learning from African democracies, because that is an absolutely anti-little d democratic effort. And what do you do when people are literally not going to count your ballots? The American playbook doesn't contemplate that, right? That is not something that we think about or that is a response that we have had to have. You know, how do you protest that? How do you rise up against that? It's not just go vote again. Like that isn't the response to that. So it was calling upon a lot of the examples that I had seen in my studies. So what was next for you after that stretch of, of occupations? So after grad school, I went to a small international organization for a little bit to see if I could break into that space. And in that time while I was there, the Shelby County v. Holder decision was handed down, which gutted the Voting Rights Act. And quite frankly, American donors realized that racism was not solved in our elections, which was already certainly the case, but that brought their attention to it. And, you know, organizations like the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights and many others were funded much more strongly for their voting rights work. And so I went to the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights and worked on the election protection program for three years for the 2014 and 2016 cycles, organizing local advocacy and poll monitoring programs in Pennsylvania, Florida, and a few other states, and running their national uh, nonpartisan hotline for voters to call to get support in the voting process. And learned a great deal about our civil rights movement that I am ashamed that I did not know before that time, but working for a civil rights organization really pushed me to educate myself about that history of the Voting Rights Act and so many other critical parts of that movement in our country. And also to really get to work with state-based organizations that were doing incredible work 
in their states and able to build relationships on the ground with election officials, with their volunteers, and those relationships, um, seeing how valuable they were and how that was only possible because they were working on the ground in those places. And that just wasn't really feasible for me coming from D.C., helped me to realize that if I wanted to continue in voting rights work uh, and to have the kind of impact I wanted to have, that that would need to be at a state-based organization or space. You went into the world of training, right? That's right. Yeah. uh, Tell me about that transition. It seems like you you got into the habit of about three years at a place and then maybe your feet get itchy or something. I don't know. Or there's an (laughs) opportunity. That does seem to be be the trend for me, yes. So at the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights, I transitioned the election protection program from predominantly an in-person training of trainers model to an on-demand online training model to be able to be a little bit more efficient with our training and standardize it more. And so led that process of obtaining a learning management system as well as developing some of the curriculum templates and all of that. And so with that, I um, after 2016, I loved the nonpartisan civil rights work, but I felt like I needed to be at an organization where I could go to work every day and say Donald Trump is the devil and not have to censor myself in uh, 2017. And so I had the opportunity to join the National Democratic Training Committee as employee number three and help to build out that organization and their online training program and spent three years doing that and training candidates and staff members and activists throughout the country uh, with our online training curriculum and then also supporting some other pieces of the work and learned a great deal about what good training is. And I am still a proselytizer in anywhere I can find about how we need to do more interactive and skills-based training and how we train adults and acknowledge their existing experiences and the value that they're bringing to the table and make it less top-down. And so learned a great deal from, from my time there and how to give good training that I've done have applied a lot in the three years that I spent at the Texas Democratic Party as well, where a lot of voter protection work is, especially in a state as big as Texas, right? We have 30 million people in this state. It is as large as many countries. And there's no way for a small but mighty team of voter protection folks. My team ranged anywhere from two to 25 at its height in 2020, but no way for us to really cover all of the ground. So we have to rely on um, the advocates and stakeholders and campaign staff and folks from all different facets of the organizing infrastructure to be out there in communities doing voter education and supporting voters when they're going to the polls and when they have questions. And so training was a big part of that in supporting those people with different roles within the infrastructure and spent three years there. Why do we need voter protection in Texas? Great question. Why do we need voter protection in Texas? Texas Republicans will take any chance they can to prevent somebody from voting, and they use all of the levers at their disposal. Not just anybody from voting, right? Right. Particular people. Texas Republicans have targeted very precisely black and brown Texans and folks in the larger urban areas of Texas. And as well as youth, actually, they've done some things that are targeted there as well. So those folks, you know, if you look at the through line there, Democratic voters, big D Democratic voters, folks who vote for Democrats. And 
Texas Republicans know that their days are numbered in power and are trying to use that power to cling to it for as long as they can. And, you know, you saw this in the 2010s that they passed an incredibly restrictive voter ID law. It's very difficult to register voters in Texas. You have to be authorized in each individual county that the person might live in. That's 254 counties. And then someone has to individually or personally rather bring that form to that clerk's office in that county. You can't even mail the form in for the person. And so we've had those infrastructural challenges where Texas was one of the only states of five that didn't allow anyone to vote by mail in 2020. During the middle of the worst pandemic in 100 years, people were not allowed to vote by mail unless they were 65 or older or had a disability. And so there's the structural pieces. And then when you have a clerk or an election administrator who tries to, within those bounds, create opportunities for voters to access the ballot. Like in 2020, the clerk in Harris County, where Houston is, sent applications for a mail ballot to a lot of voters so that those who were eligible would not have a printer stand in their way of getting their ballot or created drive-through voting to allow folks to vote outdoors where they might feel more safe. Those efforts were all attacked by Republicans and they sued over those things to make sure that it was hard to vote in Texas. And so what we do in voter protection is advocacy at the state legislative level to fight back against those bad bills when they are implemented, like in 2022, when they made mail voting even harder. We were there supporting our local administrators and our local advocates to make that implementation go as smoothly as it can in a bad situation. And then supporting voters with education and information and trying to integrate within the campaign structure so that when you are getting that mailer about this candidate that you're supporting, also you're getting information about where is my polling place? What do I need to bring to vote? Where can I get more information and assistance? And having folks at the polls themselves who can support you if something goes wrong there. I've talked to a number of people who were engaged in the voter protection game from different vantage points, from technology, from national organizations. It's always struck me as a bit of a thankless part of the progressive ecosystem, maybe, or nonpartisan ecosystem sometimes, because it's not that well known. It's kind of unseen. It's kind of helpful on the margin. Like it doesn't throw a huge number of votes, most likely. There's debates about if you have a restrictive voter ID, how what percentage does that change? I, I suspect you're closer than I am to the studies on that. But you know, I, I can see how your career path has sort of taken you step by step to doing this. But what keeps you in the in the game and now starting, I take it, your own group to do this? I mean, I asked you earlier about politics, but voter protection? I subscribe a lot to the old adage that I'm going to butcher the exact phrasing, but, you know, voting is the fundamental right without which we don't have any of the others. And so I care about all of the issues that we as progressives believe in, from being pro-choice to pro-public education. My mom is a middle school principal to the dignity of work and folks needing to earn a living wage. But the way that Republicans are 
preventing us from accessing all of those things in part is by discouraging us from voting or actually preventing folks from voting. And so the way that I can have an impact on all of the things that I care about is by making sure that voters have access to the ballot box. And that's what I view as my, my piece of the pie. And I have had voters who have just jumped through so many hoops and then they finally get to vote and, or they finally, you know, were on the phone walking them through what they need to do. And they're so grateful. I've had folks pray for me on the phone, just the gratitude and the importance of this for some folks and being able to be a part of that process for them really means a lot to me personally. So I love that I get to have both short-term impact of like helping individual humans exercise their right to vote and access the ballot box. And then we also do this larger, longer-term work in terms of advocacy and process and creating more opportunities to vote. So that combination of the short and long-term, I think is a lot of what keeps me in it and keeps me motivated. Cliff Walker is the person who suggested that I talk to you. Who is he and why would he say that you're the best hire that he had part in making happen over the time he's been working in Texas? Well, Cliff is behind the scenes, but a politician, you know, so that's why he would phrase it that way in introducing <laughs> us. But Cliff Walker is a principal at Seeker Strategies. He was my boss when I first came to the Texas Democratic Party when he was the deputy executive director at the state party and knew every part of the state knew every part of the politics and who you need to talk to to get what done in the state and has been so impactful in democratic politics here. I was so lucky to learn from him and be able to, to tap into his knowledge when I was first coming to Texas and learning about politics here. And then Cliff just continues to be a mentor and a friend. So was very, very generous and kind to introduce us. One of the ways that Cliff and I became closer was, you know, during the pandemic, I moved here like two months before the pandemic hit and we closed down our Texas Democratic Party offices. And a group of us, including Cliff, decided that we needed to, you know, keep in touch and keep ourselves sane by having more social interaction. And so through almost all of 2020, even toward, you know, as we got into October, we had a sacred Thursday night code names night where we would all get on a, a Zoom and play code names online to keep ourselves both entertained and connected and keep that sense of community that, you know, a lot of us really value in the political space, even through a pandemic. That sounds cool. Texas. We keep getting disappointed in Texas from a national perspective. We get excited about some candidate who's running statewide, or it feels like demographic change or population growth might be favoring us. And then things aren't as close or victory isn't in the cards so far. Why should we keep Texas on the battleground? Why should we keep working in Texas if this keeps happening? Yeah, that's a great question. I think one that a lot of folks are asking. And Texas is a huge prize, right? If we get there, then Republicans don't have a chance in a presidential election. If the electoral votes go from Texas go to a Democrat, game over. You don't need to stay up late <laughs> later that night, you know. But it's also because the I think something that I have really realized since I moved to Texas that has been a shift for me since I was focused on national politics is that regardless of what the impact is nationally, there are 30 million 
Americans who live in this state who we need to care about as human beings. And right now, we are under draconian Republican laws from women being forced to give birth to one million Texans unnecessarily not having health insurance because we won't do Medicaid expansion. And there's many other ways in which folks are just not okay in Texas because of the politics here and because of this policy infrastructure. And it's not easy. Like we keep trying and we keep, you know, kind of one step forward, two steps back, but we have to keep investing in the infrastructure in Texas, because if we don't, we're never going to make that forward movement. Starving something is not the way to get it to grow and the way to get it to progress. And so it's not going to necessarily be quick and easy because it's too big of a state. It's too diverse of a state. There's too much ground to cover for it to be a quick and easy win. But we need to invest in the long-term future of both the people of Texas and what Texas can bring nationally. You may know that I'm particularly interested in people who decide to start their own things in politics, political entrepreneurs. What happened to you that you went from longtime staffer in many different good organizations to deciding you're going to do your own thing? It really just comes from my desire to want to continue doing this work, but quite frankly, wanting to do it more sustainably and with a little bit more flexibility. So at the beginning of the year, I started Dempower Labs with a couple of business partners. And the reason that this came about was because we wanted to provide the institutional knowledge and the infrastructure as more states are moving to year-round, long-term voter protection. And between us, we have been doing this work over six election cycles in 43 states and have seen a lot done the right way, but also seen a lot of things done the wrong way. (laughs) We want to help future voter protection teams get right the first time because our democracy is on fire and we just don't have the time to make mistakes. We don't have the time to reinvent wheels. And we want to support folks in that work. And personally, it just brings together a lot of the parts of my work that I have really loved from being able to support the voting rights work that is just my heart to being able to coach and support other leaders in the space but through our work with state parties, voter protection teams. So Dempower Labs works with state democratic parties and their voter protection staff to build their democracy defense infrastructure in state and help them learn those lessons and not keep running into the same brick walls that other folks may have faced in the past. So if I tried it in Texas and it didn't work, let's talk about how we can adjust that for your plan. Or if one of my business partners you know, did that in Georgia in the past, and this is how it went really great, let's learn the lesson from that and support folks as they're growing their own state's programs with their plan based on the uniqueness and the experience in their state. But let's take some of those lessons and apply them. Who are these business partners that you referenced? Sure. My business partners are Josh Scollins, who was at the DNC and their voter protection team for a couple of years. And before that, ran voter protection programs in Connecticut and Georgia. And I'm sure I'm actually missing a couple states there. And then my other business partner is Kim Allen, who was a deputy on the voter protection team in Georgia in 2020. That was so pivotal to some of our successes there. And now also runs an organization called Power the Vote, 
that helps fund state parties' voter protection programs so that we can do this work year-round. What kind of organization are you? We are a consulting firm. We're an LLC. So the state parties are our clients, and then we work for them in that capacity. And how's it going in terms of finding clients and doing the work? It's going well. So my business partners did a pilot program in the fall and worked with Pennsylvania, Arizona, and Michigan and found a lot of success and learned some lessons. And then we are we spun off into our own organization at the beginning of this year. And we are working right now with the Georgia Democratic Party and Michigan Democratic Party and expect to have a couple other states that we're working with within the next month or so. And so what do you do for them exactly? Yeah, so there's a lot of turnover in the voter protection space, like a lot of campaigns, right? It's a cyclical job in a lot of cases and folks move on. And so we help to onboard new staff so that they scale that learning curve really quickly. Because as you know, we never have enough time and there's always more work than there are people. So we help them scale that learning curve. And if you're coming from the legal side, let's teach you organizing 101 so that you know how to have a one-on-one and bring your volunteers into the mix. Let's make sure you know Van so that you can take advantage of the data tools that are at your disposal. And if you're coming from the organizing side, let's make sure you know the laws that you can use to advocate for, for your folks and support them. Then after folks are on board, then we are ongoing consulting, support, coaching, and capacity addition. So you don't have enough time to run this project and you need someone who knows what's up to do it, we can take that off your plate. But we're also there as you're building your plan and executing it, maybe running into challenges to help guide you through that and solve those problems. Is it different substantially from state to state? So the overarching tools at our disposal in terms of voter protection, advocacy, poll watching, hotline, those are largely the same across states. But the substance is incredibly different because from one state to another, you have very different laws, but even from one county to another within a state or a municipality, in the case of Michigan, you have a different way of approaching things and you end up with a different set of rules governing, for instance, how a mail ballot is counted or processed. You might have different rules about how poll watchers are allowed to behave in the polling place because your election official thinks about it differently. So the laws change from state to state and also just the whims of the people who get to make the rules, you know, and enforce them. I think something like a year, year and a half ago, I talked to a guy who's building a tool called Osprey for tracking voter protection efforts, tracking the people involved. Did that ever come to your attention? So the folks at Osprey built a tool that would save us hundreds of hours in the voter protection space in matching volunteers who are going to be poll watchers at a specific polling place with the polling place that they're going to serve at. So rather than doing that manually, they had built an algorithm and a tool to let us connect those people and those places that needed support. That has created the inspiration for some other tools to do similar things. And so there's another entity called VoPro Pros that helped to create something that Texas used in 2022. And now my understanding is that um, the DNC is working on something similar. Is there anything else in the intersection of tech and voter protection that people should know about? There are a ton of tools out there that allow folks to put in their information, check and see if you're registered and register to vote or get a mail ballot application. And the one thing that I would say to folks 
who might interact with those tools or using those tools or building those tools is not to forget the states that are lagging behind on the technology curve. <laughs> so places like Texas, where you can't register to vote online if you're registering for the first time. And there's some other states in a similar situation or where you have to send in a paper mail ballot application. As we move to a more technology-focused space, we need to make sure that we are building tools that support all of us and don't leave those voters behind. Because what we see a lot is that voters use those tools and then think that it's all happened magically online, right? But then in reality, in Texas, if they haven't printed out their application and signed it and mailed it in, they haven't actually registered or they haven't actually submitted their application for mail ballot. We saw that in a lot of other states too when I was at the Lawyers Committee managing their hotline. And so less so in terms of like interesting tools that are super innovating the space and more so in terms of kind of the messes that we are cleaning up sometimes because of the way that some tools are not fully looking at the edge cases in terms of a place like Texas and some others. Where do you want this to be in five, 10 years? Like, is this something you're going to stay with for a while? And what do you want to, with your partners, create? Yeah, I absolutely hope that we'll be around for five, 10 years. And the vision, you know, like with obligatory saying, I hope we put ourselves out of business because everyone in America can has equal access to the ballot and everything is hunky-dory. But unfortunately, I don't, I don't foresee that world being realistic. So what I see us doing in five or 10 years is that many more states, hopefully all 50, but at least 20 to 25 of our state Democratic parties have a year-round voter protection program that is playing at the legislative level, that is building deep relationships with local election officials, and that we're able to help support those folks in long-term career building so that they are staying in those roles year after year, because it is with that length of tenure that we can build those deeper relationships that really help to solve those problems. And, you know, I saw that in Texas for myself when I stayed on in 2022, there were problems that I never even knew happened in 2020 that I'm sure happened that in 22, I heard about just because folks knew who to call. And they knew that I was around and that I was going to answer for them. And I think that that is a hope that I have for a lot more states that we just have that sort of tenure and you know who to call. And then if they don't have enough capacity or if they need support, that Dempower Labs is there to back them up and support them and their teams and their growth and their ability to put on great programs. And that we're learning across states that we're using this information to build better programs every year and not just in a presidential year, but for the gubernatorial election, for the state legislative elections, so that voters always have that backup and always know that the Democratic Party is there to support them. And I think that's been an important thing that we've been able to build in Texas is that vote, it, it's very clear that the Republican Party does not want many Texans to vote. But we are building a culture where it is clear that the Democratic Party is there to support them and to help them navigate that process that the Republicans have made more complicated. And I hope that we can do that in a lot of places. Would you ever run for office yourself for like secretary of state or something that's in this general neck of the woods? <laughs> uh, I don't think so. I do not want to be in front of the camera, so to speak. I am much more interested in getting the work done. I'm an implementer. I'm the one who kind of is behind the scenes, making things happen and making the plans and seeing how it's all going to go. And that's, Kind of my my piece of the world. What's your role at Dem Power? I am our COO. 
That's like internal operations more than external operations or what does that mean? Well, we're a three-person team, so we all do all of the things. <laughs> and I'm working with our clients to help them build out their programs and support their programs. But I'm also you know, learning QuickBooks and <laughs> managing some of our bookkeeping and figuring out what our timekeeping mechanisms are and all of that fun spreadsheet and data stuff and how we all get paid and that sort of thing. But in such a small operation, we are all externally facing and talking to stakeholders and potential partners and working with clients. And the working with clients part is, as you would imagine, my, my favorite, getting to help other folks solve those problems. Rose, what should I have asked you that I haven't? I think you've been really comprehensive. I think the one question that folks might have is, how does this work that state parties do differ from the work that you know our C3 and C4 friends are doing? Because a lot of times we think about the election protection program as that domain. And what I would say to that is that all of these are important ingredients to supporting voters. But as state democratic parties, a lot of times we have legal authority that our nonpartisan folks do not. So in many states like Wisconsin and Texas and a number of others, we actually appoint the poll workers. We decide who is going to be at the poll greeting voters and processing their registration and all of that. And that determines whether a voter is accepted or whether they are told, oh, you don't have sufficient ID and not given all the options that they have. If you're a person who believes in democracy, that makes a real difference. In some states, the election official is a partisan official, you know, the person who is the county clerk or county supervisor of elections. And so recruiting those folks and helping them to tie all those pieces together, that's a function the party can have. And then we oftentimes are there to appoint poll watchers. In a number of states, only the party can do that. So there's a lot of ability that we have that our nonpartisan folks do not. And we want to make sure that folks are exercising that to their fullest. I think that's something we've been neglecting a lot over the last few decades that Republicans are not neglecting and are really going all in on to appoint election deniers to poll worker positions, to counting board positions that, you know, determine which ballots are counted or not. And we need to make sure that as Democrats, we're appointing folks with our values for voting rights, for democracy, to these roles and taking full advantage of every opportunity we have to put people who believe in democracy in positions of authority. It's an honor to talk to you about this today. I appreciate you coming on the show. Is there anything else you want to say? No, thank you so much. It was such a pleasure to chat with you, and I really appreciate your time. Well, I wish you good luck with Dem Power Labs. I hope it's impactful and fun. That was Rose. She's at Rose Clouston on Twitter slash X. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere, and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.